squandering the scepter. Last Sunday evening, we talked about squandering the scepter and we talked about the life of King Saul and the failure of King Saul. When you think about squandering of something, I think about somebody who has such a great, tremendous opportunity. They have so much ability and then they don't use it. Maybe here's a person who spends four years to go to and get a college education. And they graduate and they do a job that they could have easily done without the education. They squandered the money, they squandered their time, and they squandered so many things because they don't use what's been given to them. And the truth is, God calls us to put our whole heart and our whole effort into trying to serve Him. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. Fervent in the Spirit, putting everything you've got into it. Colossians 3, 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So when I sing, here am I, Lord send me. Oh, I mean, that's mean that. God, give me a job, let me do it. Give me a, a possibility of something. God calls each of us to live up to our highest potential. I may not be the five-talent man. I may not be the ten-talent man. But if the Lord gives me a talent, He expects me to use it to the best of my ability. In the book of Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. Put all of your effort into it. While I may not be the best preacher, I've got to be the best preacher I can be. Well, we may not be the best song leader that there ever is, but we've got to be the best song leader that we can be. When it comes to our time to pray, we may not be able to have the prayer that's so beautiful and so eloquent, but it needs to come from the depths of our heart. But you see, the problem is, is that many times we don't live up to our potential. We squander the opportunities that have been placed before us. Saul, David, and Solomon, the three of the United Kingdom kings, each in their own way failed at the opportunity that God had presented to them. Each was to rule, each was to face a challenge to their leadership. You see, power and prosperity has corrupted many people. You can take a person who can be, just be a good man and you can put him in a position of honor and a position of power and quite often that goes to his head. God recognized even that among the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he discusses when you arrive in the land and he says, I want you to keep my commandments. Beware that you don't forget them. Because he said in verse 12, lest when you've eaten and are full and you have beautiful houses and you dwell in them and you're herds and your flocks, you're multiplying. In other words, everything that you have starts to, to turn in the good direction. He said, make sure you don't forget God. I'd suggest to you, Saul, David, and Solomon forgot who it was they were serving, and they forgot God. How would these opportunities be used by these kings? Would David avoid the pitfalls of Saul? Well, tonight, what we want to do is look, as we did last week, at the potential that David had. We want to look, number two, at the pitfalls that he faced. We'll look at seven of them. 
And then the hard part for us, looking at the parallels in our own lives. While there's nobody perfect, and there certainly isn't, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20, there's not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. Even if you were to choose the very best man in the world to serve as our president, to serve as our governor, to serve as, in this case, the king, each and every one would have flaws in their lives, just like you and I do as well. David, with regards to potential, is a man who was known as a man after God's own heart. Not only in Acts 13, verse 22, as Brother Kurt read to us just a few moments ago, but in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As Samuel came and he looked at the sons of Jesse, no, not him, not him, not him. Well, where is the last one? He's tending the sheep. You see, there's something that we often look at the outward appearance of man. What kind of outward characteristics? David, with regards to potential, was a tremendous person because his heart was focused on serving God. And I'll tell you another great potential thing in David. He was truly sorry once he recognized that he had committed a sin. He recognized that once I've violated God's law, I shouldn't have done that. In Psalm 51, 1 through 3, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I acknowledge. When you start thinking about David, he always wanted to fix what he had broken. When David sinned and he became aware of his sin, he was a man of a tender heart. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. When David numbered the children of Israel, he said, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Psalm 32, 5 through 7, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, see, David, in all of these instances recognize, yes, I failed, but God, I want to do what's right. I want you to deliver me and help me do what I ought to do. Of the penitential Psalms, like Psalm 32, also Psalm 51, 10 through 15, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. You see, David looked at God and said, God, I recognize my failures. I want to make things right. Well, there are seven pitfalls 
that David fell into. You see, as he was facing (coughs) his life and he was facing all of these challenges, David, even though his heart many times was in the right place, he did the wrong thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these seven very briefly before we start looking at the parallels. Number one, David failed to respect God's order. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. <coughs> 1 Chronicles chapter 13. We'll look at verse 7 and verses 9 through 12. David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to himself at Jerusalem. David felt as if the Ark should belong in the place where God's house was going to be. It said, so they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Now, I want you to understand, David had a new cart prepared. The animals pulling that cart, they're not, they're special. David didn't look at this as something that was unimportant. In fact, it was extremely important. But as you go on and look in verse 9, it says, As they came to Kidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because his hand, he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? I want you to imagine, here's David wanting to bring the ark, And Uzzah touches it. Uzzah dies. But you go over to chapter 15 in verse 13. And you have the explanation here. It says, For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Now listen carefully. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. The proper order. You see, David had a great amount of enthusiasm, a great desire because he wanted to do something spiritual, something religious. Do you know sometimes we're motivated by a great desire? But David said, we didn't consult God about the proper order. We didn't look up in his word and see, is this something God permits or not permit? I don't deny the fact that there are many people in religious groups tonight that are in their services think they're offering God an acceptable service. They may be worshiping with mechanical instruments. They may be having women who are preaching and teaching in their book. Are they sincere what they're doing? I have no doubt about that. But are they wrong? You see, you have to consult God about the proper order. Second pitfall that David fell into was situation ethics. If you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I've got so many scriptures tonight. I'm going to have to summarize some of these for you. 
You get to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and David comes to the place called Nob, and Ahimelech is the priest there. And uh, when David arrives, Ahimelech says to him, Why are you alone? No one is with you. And David says to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever may be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. Now, you think about that for just a second. There's no common bread, there's holy bread. Wait a minute, who gets to eat the holy bread? Only the priest. David is not from the tribe of Levi. In fact, you won't know he's from the tribe of Judah. And David, you you know, you can't have this bread. Well, well, you have to understand now, uh, Ahimelech, truly the women has been kept from us for three days and since I came out... The vessels of young men are holy, and the bread is, in effect, common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. In other words, I, I know it's been set aside, but it's common bread anyway. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were then with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Oh. David said, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's all right this time. Lying, eating the holy bread, well, it's okay for me. It's okay this time. David looked at himself as not having to answer because whatever the situation put him in, it would be all right, whatever he did. Number three, David intended to murder a fool. If you go to chapter 25, I know you're familiar with this guy by the name of Nabal. And by trying to set up the uh, understanding of this passage, David goes to the area around Mount Carmel. There's a beautiful valley at the foot of Mount Carmel. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. It's a very fertile valley. They grow all kinds of crops and grains there. And various animals graze upon those pastures, beautiful green pastures. And uh, Nabal is there. And David, as he goes from place to place, asks for provisions. You know, our, our men need some help to be able to have food to eat. Nabal's response was very sharp, very harsh, looking at him and saying, you know, uh, these days there are all kinds of men who break away from their masters, and uh, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat, which I've killed for my shears, and give it to men who I do not know where they're from? And in other words, he basically blows David off. He says, you're not anybody important to me. And uh, so if you keep on reading... Verse 21, David said, Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing is missed of all that belongs to him 
and he's repaid me with evil for good. And David intends to kill him because of that. Were it not for the intervention of Nabal's wife, Abigail, she says, you know, he's a scoundrel. Even his wife recognizes that. Even folly is with him, and she intercedes. Notice with me verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. You know what David was thinking about? This man just made me mad. He insulted me. Because he has insulted me, because he won't do what I want him to do, I'll just kill him. What kind of world would we live in if we killed everybody who annoyed us? And you think about that for just a second. Everybody who is short and curt with you when you speak to them, I'll just kill him. The world would be a very dangerous place, would it not? But do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, or chapter 13, excuse me. Beloved, avenge not yourselves, but give place to wrath. For it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. God is the one who is to take the vengeance, not us. He almost murdered a man because of that. And uh, because of that, uh, Nabal ended up dying, but it was by God's hand and not by Nabal's or not by David's next is perhaps the one that is the most notable and that is David's lust and adultery you know the Lord had blessed David in a number of different ways one of the things is he got to marry the daughter of Saul whose name was Michael but David was a man who was actually looking evidently for the next woman to come along. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It happened in the spring of the year that the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they went to the people of Ammon and uh, destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening as David arose from his bed and walked out on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. You see what happened. David took another man's wife. David looked and saw her. That sin ended up destroying David's kingship. It's destroyed many a man and it destroyed David's kingship. Now obviously you know what happened. Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm with child. She conceived when they committed adultery. And now David has got to deal with that sin. If you go to 
chapter 11, beginning with verse 5, and you read through verse 13, when she says, I am with child, David calls Uriah home and he says, uh, Uriah, go down to your house tonight. No, I'm not going to do that while the men are still in the field. And so what happens is he comes and he gathers with the other servants of the Lord at the Lord's gate. Well, then he goes on and what he does, David in verse 13, now when he had called him, he ate and drank before him and made him drunk. At evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but did not go down to his house. You see, what David was trying to do was to get Uriah to go home to be with his wife. Bathsheba, and hopefully he would think that he was the father of this child, but Uriah was not cooperating. David said in Psalm 32, verses 2 and 3, Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. David said, you know what, when I kept silent, it was eating me up on the inside. There's sin there, and David's trying to hide it. Well, obviously, you know what's going to come from that. Uriah is not going to cooperate with his plan to to, uh, hide the sin. So now he's going to have him killed. You get to chapter 11 and verse 15. He wrote a letter saying, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Put him at the front of the battle and everybody will get back and you know what's going to happen to him. He's going to die. 2 Samuel 12 verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of God or the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. There's three things wrong that you did there, David. You killed a good man. You see, Uriah was a good soldier. He was a loyal soldier. When he came back, he didn't go to his house and live it up. No, he showed respect for the position that he had. He was a good man who didn't deserve to die. But number seven, David numbered the children of Israel. If you'll turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is something that we often just sort of brush over. But this was really a serious matter. Let me read to you verses 2 and 3. We're going to draw attention particularly to the latter part of verse 3. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the king a people hundred times more than they are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. Here's the key part. But why? Does my Lord the King desire this thing? The numbering. Why do you want to know the number? Why is it important for you to know the number? Drop down to verses 9 and 10. 
Then Joab, Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. Now stop just a minute there. The question that Joab asked, why do you desire this? Now David's heart, his conscience, condemns him. The reasons that he numbered the people, he won't know the number of people I've got to fight a battle. Once David had stood in the valley of Elah with Saul and looking at him and saying, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear and he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This young boy went against this great giant because of his confidence and faith in God. Now David says, let's see how many we've got. How many we can send into battle. His heart condemned him. And it says, so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It's a lack of faith and trust in God. Psalm 33, 16 and 17, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. And a horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. You have to learn, David. You can't have enough people to fight against God or to fight against God's plan. Now, very briefly, I'd like to talk about some parallels for ourselves. And, you know, if I, if I start looking at the kings, it's almost like looking at children. You know, you've got a really good child who never tries to do anything wrong, never messes up. And then you've got that mischievous child that seems to get into everything. David was a man after God's own heart. And David messed up and... In that sense, there was a great disappointment with David. Here's a man who could have been the greatest of all kings. And look at what he did. Look at his mistakes. Look at his failures. Sometimes our enthusiasm can get us in trouble. Even people with good hearts and good consciences can make mistakes. Let's say, for instance, we're trying to decide what we want to do and Someone says, well, hey, I think this is a good idea. Someone else proposes another idea. Do you know what we always ought to do? Not just sometimes, but always. Well, what would God want us to do? Has he said anything in his word that offers some guidance? Let's temper our enthusiasm with knowledge and understanding. You remember Romans chapter 10? Brethren, these people have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Romans 10, verses 1 through 3. I think about the situation ethics. 
David tried to rationalize what he was doing to make it acceptable. Maybe we do something, maybe we say something, and someone says, well, they did it first. Someone says something mean and harsh to you, what are you going to do? Return evil for evil? That's not what the Bible tells you to do. See, God expects us to do the right thing even in difficult circumstances, even in difficult situations. Annoying people can frustrate us. You know, sometimes you really want to look at people and say, would you just be quiet? Sometimes you want to lash out. Do you remember what James 1, 19 and 20 says? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You mean God is saying, okay, you've got to check yourself. Yes. David didn't want to check himself with Nabal, but I've got to make sure. I want to avoid saying something I ought not say. One must be extremely careful with lust leading to adultery. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he who does so destroys his own soul. He's going to destroy his life. He says wounds and dishonors he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. See, he's talking about a man who goes into another man's wife. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. Adultery is a serious violation of the sacred bond of marriage. And you need to make sure that you stay away from anything that might lead you to that. Jesus said, I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her or for her, He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. You don't look at that person and desire lust like David did for Bathsheba. James warns in James chapter 1, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust or own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Romans 13, verse 14. But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. I used the illustration yesterday uh, at Gatlinburg with the men's class. Somebody had brought in several dozen Krispy Kreme donuts that were really warm, looked really good. And I said, it's like the man who said, Lord, if you want me to have a donut, put a parking space right in front of the donut shop. Sure enough, right there the fifth time around, there was a space right in front of the donut shop. (laughs) If a person wants to commit adultery, you know what's going to happen? 
They're going to look for opportunities. And sooner or later, an opportunity is going to present itself. We all live with the temptation to cover up rather than to fess up. None of us want to admit our mistakes, our failures. We don't want to come clean with it. But Solomon himself said in Proverbs 28, 13, He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Let me go to this last one because I'm fearful that this could be something that those of us in the Lord's church can be guilty of. Numbers are about man's strength, not God. Is there anything wrong with our posting the number of people present? Look at the board today, look at it last week. We can become obsessed by numbers. If our desire, you remember go back, you know, Joab asked the question to David, why do you desire to do this? Does that number represent precious souls about whom we are concerned? Does the the increase in the number say that reflects that many more people who are worshiping God? Yes, that's, that's a right motivation. But what if we're looking at it and say, hey, if we got so many people, look what we can do. Then we're wrong. See, God never wanted us to say, our numbers make us who we are. No. God makes us who we are. Let me give you a great illustration, then I'm going to sum this up. Judges chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. You remember, God, God chose Gideon to go... And deliver the children of Israel from the Midianites. And uh, he tells him in verse 2. He says. um, The people who are with you are too many for me. Too many? Yes. He said. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. Look what we did. So he said. Tell everybody that's fearful and afraid. Go home. 22,000 goes Packed up and went home. God said there's still too many. 10,000 people left. We'll bring them down to the water. See how they drink the water. You know, some's going to lap like a dog. Someone's going to get on their knees. Lord said that 300 people, those are the ones I'm going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. 300 from 32,000? Oh, yeah. The reason why is because I want the people to know that I'm the one who brought about the deliverance. God took 12 passionate men, made them apostles, and in the first century they carried the gospel into all the world. You take 12 people committed, and they can do a tremendous thing. David lost the kingdom due to his son. Uh, he lost it to his son due to his sin. Gets chapter 15 and you read about Absalom, how he stole the hearts of the children of Israel. And uh, you get to chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. And I want to read this. 
Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, thus I have no delight in you, here I am, and let him do unto me as it seems good to him. David recognized, you know what, I'm a broken man now. I recognize I have squandered the opportunity God gave me. Here I am. Maybe maybe God will take me back. Saul had his physical prowess. David had his lust. Solomon's going to have his wisdom. And each of the three are going to fail. At least David made an attempt to correct his wrongs. Still had a lot of consequences, but he made an attempt to correct his wrong. You know what? I look at myself, and I hope that you're looking at yourself. Here we are in this life, at this moment in our lives, and what are we going to do? Are we going to live up to our greatest potential to be God, what God wants us to be? And someone says, but I have failed. I failed miserably. Yes, but have the attitude of David that says, yes, I failed, but maybe God will take me back. You know the same words of the prodigal son. Maybe my father will make me like one of his hired servants. God is looking for those of us, his children, and to say, it's time to come back home. Maybe you've not ever started. Maybe you've never become a Christian tonight. We'd love for you to become a child of God by being baptized for the remission of your sins. If you need to respond, we're going to sing. There's a stranger at the door. Would you come? As together we stand and sing.